Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. This week, music on Communication Mixdown. The best album of all time and one of the worst national anthems ever. Hi, I'm John Langer and this is another edition of Communication Mixdown. Fifty years ago this month, the Beatles released their concept LP, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and its cultural impact and significance has been debated and discussed ever since. Christine Feldman Barrett is a sociologist at Griffith University, and she specializes in the history of youth cultures. And she's been following the Sgt. Pepper impact debate, which is getting lots of commentary with this 50th anniversary. I spoke to her by telephone last week. You call yourself a Gen X Beatles fan. So I wanted to ask, uh, how did this come about and where does the Sgt. Pepper album fit into all this? Sure. Well, look, I'm turning 46 at the end of July, so I definitely thought into Generation X. Um, really, the Beatles have been with me since I was about seven years old, seven or eight years old. I remember getting a children's book about the Beatles that was a bunch of drawings. I don't think it even had any photos of the Beatles in it. And I remember just being fascinated by kind of the psychedelic artwork. You know, it was it was geared towards children, but it definitely had that very psychedelic look to it. And then... I can't quite remember, it must have been around that same time that I had a babysitter who had the Sgt. Pepper's album, and I remember being, again, fascinated by the cover, just how colorful it was, and all the people who were there as part of the Lonely Hearts Club band, and of course it was only years later that I found out the fascinating story behind the cover art with um, artist Peter Blake and you know, just everything that went into creating that. Yeah, that's my earliest memory of the Beatles and the album. And 
hearing the album, I loved the songs right away, and I have an older sister who mm. was born 1966. By the time we were, I don't know, I would say I was eight or nine, um, and she would have been 13 or 14, we attended uh, the Beatles Fest in Chicago. That's really where my interest in the Beatles stems from, and I have just always been a fan. And mm -hmm. when I was doing my PhD, I focused on mod 60s culture, the mod subculture, but also, you know, the Beatles playing into influencing mm. the mods in some ways. I'm a fan, but I've also written separate articles about the Beatles and their influence. So it's gone from a love and a hobby to part of my profession, which is mm. a cool thing for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone should be as lucky as you. Um, now, uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper's album, and yes. they're celebrating the release of this album. There's been a lot of what I would call sound and fury, and pardon the pun, accompanying this anniversary. And there's been a yeah. lot of commentary that's poured out of this. And some of it is very fractious. Some of it's very bitter, in fact, happening mm -hmm. around this celebration of this particular album. And one of the issues that keeps coming up is the claim that this is the greatest rock album ever. What's your take on that issue? Well, look, I think... It's really difficult to, first of all, come up with the best album of all time. Certainly, um, I think more people would agree than disagree that the Beatles have been the biggest thing in popular music over the last 50 years, even though, you know, they broke up before I was born. Even. You know, they broke up, what, now 47 years ago, and... Uh, still, there's never been a band, really, that could top what they accomplished in the, mm. you know, less than decade that they were together. And I know that's arguable, but I think most people would agree that the Beatles have been the biggest thing ever in terms of a rock band. Um, in terms of an album, though, I can see why it's fractious, because if you even look at the Beatles' dis discography, it's hard for anyone to agree which one is the best. I think everybody has their favorite Beatles album. And I think the thing about Sgt. Pepper, though, it's really the reason why it has become iconic is it's uh, so wrapped up in its own time in terms of the Beatles really tapping into the zeitgeist and also helping create the zeitgeist of 1967 and the Summer of Love and so on. And yet, even though it's so much a product of its time, even with the pop art cover, it also manages to transcend time and has become a favorite for lots of people, not for everyone, certainly. But I think that's why it's iconic, and that's why I think some people will argue that it is the Beatles' best album, and that's why there is all this hoopla around mm -hmm. the 50th anniversary of its release. So I think, you know, as a cultural artifact... Uh, and something that, as I said, is so much of the 1960s, but is, it has songs, it has songs with melodies and rhythms that we really can still relate to, and the lyrics are quite fascinating throughout all the songs on the album, that I think people can make a really just argument for picking that as the Beatles album. Something that's been also said about this album, perhaps about rock I guess rock culture, rock 
particular rock rock interpretations of rock culture and rock yeah. critics is that it's very gendered and part of the mythological status of this particular album it's white it's male and it's that kind of perspective it's a very gendered perspective uh mm. that's that's creating this what again what what's your comment on that well look i mean i'm somebody who's written uh an article about how the beatles really influenced the first all-female rock bands. You know, I think people forget that before groups like the Runaways or even Fanny, who a lot of people may not even remember or know about, but certainly the Runaways have gotten attention again more recently. Um, even as early as 1964 and 1965, there were women who were forming bands because of their love of the Beatles. And that was a story that been um, really lost for decades, people didn't even know that this had been happening because, unfortunately, none of these bands really made it big. You know, they were definitely underground garage bands. But I think it's significant to remember that the Beatles had such an impact that, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old girls wanted to form bands with their best friends, you know, all-girl bands. And so, yeah, I can understand that there are these debates about, well... You know, rock music, classic rock music, because bands like the ones I described didn't make it in terms of being big breakout stars, that the classic rock canon is, yeah, it is a bunch of, you know, guys producing this music. And certainly I think there's been a process of rediscovery, trying to figure out, you know, who are the women who were involved with the music industry, whether as musicians mm. um, or producers and so on at that time. But, you know, I think that's just part of the, it is going to be part of the discussion. I don't, you know, it's interesting to me that people can sometimes get so angry, even, you know, mm. approaching the topic or to suggest mm. that, you know, we should consider other artists who are not part of that sort of mm. white male rock canon, um, you know, that that's somehow insulting to the Beatles or it, it denigrates them somehow. Mm. I don't buy that. You know, mm. I don't think there's a problem to recognize that maybe there were people at the time who didn't, you know, women who were in rock and pop music who didn't get the same attention. There's nothing wrong with kind of digging out those stories and bringing them to people's attention. But at the same time, you know, the Beatles are the Beatles, and hmm. women, men of all ages, like I said before, really, if not love, at least really respect and admire what the Beatles contributed to pop culture. So, um, mm. you know, every once in a while I meet younger people and older people who say they don't like the Beatles, and I have a really hard time believing that. Uh, horror. You know, that's horror. Horror of horrors. And especially, you know, people I meet through the academic world who are studying oh, popular no. music. What do they when know? They say, when they say they don't even, you know, like oh. one Beatles song, oh, it makes me very, very yeah, yeah. suspicious of them. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Look, there's, there's so much. There's so much we can talk about it. We don't have time, unfortunately. But you know, the the thing that occurs to me is that the Beatles, as a as a kind of performance and as a, as a visual spectacle, are, yeah. are, are they are gendered in some respects, but they are feminized as well. I mean, there was huge discussions at the time about their hair and all of that kind of oh, stuff. Oh yeah, and absolutely. So mm -hmm. 
you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of very interesting things. But I just wanted to get back to uh, discussion about this because it's the 50th anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. As I understand it, your position, firstly, you say we need to look at the album itself as a, I'm going to call it a musical soundscape that is, that basically communicates in a certain way. So if we're listening to that soundscape, what should we be listening for? Well, I mean, if we're talking about, we're talking about two things there. We're talking about the actual sounds, mm. the, um, the actual music, and then we're also talking about the lyrics. And I, in terms of the lyrics, I think we're listening for narratives that are true to life, um, both in the past and in the present, in terms of all these different stories that are very relatable. And I think that's the reason it draws people in. It's the ultimate youth culture album, because there are these aspects uh, of the lyrics that very much speak to the hopes and dreams and desires of younger people, teenagers, 20-somethings, and so on, this idea of independence and striking out and doing things that are really full of adventure and excitement and trying to get away from the mundane aspects of life. Um, so that's that's what, why I think the album is really transcendent in terms of the lyrics. In terms of what we're listening for in the music and the sounds, we are being challenged in different ways in terms of the experimental sounds that the Beatles and George Martin put together. I think it's a testament to the Beatles' desire to really try to bring new sounds into the rock music fold, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to, with the technology that was available to them at that time, to create something really artistic. And, you know, many people have said that Sgt. Pepper really was Paul's album, Paul McCartney's album, um, he was the one who was really involved in the visual arts scene in London at the time. He was the only Beatle who was living in London. The rest were out in the suburbs with their families. He was not married yet, and so he was really out on the town and trying to to soak up as much of the avant-garde art scene that was going on at the time. Mm. And he was really pushing for that in the Beatles' music. And, of course, the other three Beatles were keen to do that as well, and George Martin, being the producer he was, was very capable in bringing all those new sounds into the album. So, Going back to the lyrics and, and the songwriting itself, and you mentioned the, its appeal to youth, it's not just about youth. There are songs, in fact, about old age, and uh, I, I think that, in a sense, universalizes in, in a way, if you want to use that word, uh, the way the album works. I mean, it, it it does draw on youth, but it also kind of, it sort of suggests, well, you know, there is an end to all of that, and what are you going to do when you're 64? Right, true, but the thing that I find fascinating about that is it's a young per- person's, a young person's conception and daydreaming, if you will, about what it would be like to be 64, what it would be like mm-hmm. to be an older person, even good morning, good morning. It's very much about sort of an adult's workaday existence and, you know, trying to find pleasures and simple things amid all the responsibilities that you have. Um, so that I find that really interesting that, yes, you know, that's why it does speak to me now as a middle-aged person, even though I recognize, you know, the youthful aspects of the album, because um, it it does bridge, you know, youth and older age. And that's part of why it does appeal and why it is timeless as well. Okay, so it may or may not be the greatest rock album ever, 
But if you had to choose two top tracks, what would you choose? And I'm asking for two because I, I want to have a, give you a little bit of wiggle room. Um, yeah, I know which two favorites I have, and they're not the obvious choices, I would think. I think most people are always focused on A Day in the Life, which, of course, is um, fantastic and phenomenal. But for me, the ones that I really or that resonate with me whenever I hear them are Getting Better and Lovely Rita. Excellent. Good choice. Good choices. <laughs> <laughs> Look, thanks so much for being on Communication Mixdown. Oh, thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me on the show. And that was sociologist Christine Feldman Barrett from Griffith University, and she was talking there, as you heard, about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the album the Beatles released 50 years ago this month. And there's a bunch of other interesting views on this album in a special feature in the conversation, which is where I found Christine's work as well. And we'll put that on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website so you can have a look at that in your copious leisure time. Keep Radical Radio on the air. Pledge your support for a 3CR program during Radiothon. To make your pledge, call us on 9419 8377 or visit us at the station, 21 Smith Street in Collingwood, and pay by cash, check or FPOS. You can also visit the website 3cr.org.au or if you prefer post, send your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you would like your donation to go to. Support radical programs with passion. Melbourne, Well, we're a communication mixdown. Let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous the Australian National Anthem. Travelling in a fight combi On a hippie trail head full of zombies I met a strange lady She made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast Okay, so it wasn't the Australian National Anthem, but it might as well be because there's a view that says what we have now should be dumped and dumped fast, as fast as possible. Judith Ireland is a writer with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and a few weeks ago she wrote an interesting piece on why the Australian National Anthem is in desperate need of upgrading. And we spoke by phone about her ideas a couple of weeks ago. Tell us about the petition that was lodged with the House of Representatives in March that made a case for changing the Australian national uh, anthem. Yeah, so this is a petition um, lodged a couple of months ago, and it accused the national anthem of being a pile of garbage, quote-unquote, and then suggested that we should change the anthem to Hey Ya by Outcast, which uh, I think a lot of people would remember was a hit song from 2003. Um, now, one of the arguments 
they used is that they the person a man called Michael Wilson used um, for the petition was he didn't feel like the boundless plans to share line in verse two accorded with the current approach to immigration, but he also felt like we also just needed a better song than Advance Australia Fair. And you yourself have written, and uh, this was in an article that you published a couple of weeks ago, you wrote, and I quote, Advance Australia Fair is a mid-tempo dirge and it needs to go. And I wanted to ask why. Well, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the anthem played, particularly compared to other national anthems, if it's at a sporting event, like a rugby match or at the Olympics, then I feel a bit embarrassed. I'm not in a sort of non-patriotic way, but just because the song isn't very good, it is a bit of a dirge. It doesn't have, I guess, the melody. Um, it doesn't have the language, the lyrics that other countries have. If you look at something like God Save the Queen or the Star Spangled Banner for the US, um, Canada, New Zealand, uh, a lot of African nations have really uplifting and spine-tingling anthems. And Advanced Australia Fair just isn't. I, uh, as you can tell from my accent, uh, Canadian, and uh, yes, uh, we we had God Save the Queen, and we turned it into O Canada, and uh, I'm not sure if it's that stirring, but probably a bit more stirring than uh, what you've got in Australia at the moment. Yeah, well, look, I listened to O Canada several times while I was researching the article, and personally, I really like it. I know it's not a, a really... Uh, upbeat anthem, but it's really melodious and mm-hmm. and it's quite emotional. And I don't think people feel that way about Advanced Australia Fair. Not to say it's because, it, I mean, it was written in the 19th century. I don't think it's just because it's old that it's no good. Certainly other anthems have a long history. It just doesn't sound, just doesn't sound very stirring. I like the uh, thing that you wrote about Nick Xenophon, who uh, was was asked about this, and he said that he kept wondering who Gert was. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, other people like uh, Sandy MacDonald, who was a Nationals senator um, a little while ago, he made a speech to Parliament in 2001, and he said that, yeah, nobody um, knows the words to the second verse, mm. and the rest of us try our best with the first. So there was a bit of controversy at the time about that, but I think he was, yeah, making the same point as Nick Xenophon that the words, the lyrics aren't actually that meaningful, most people, and they should be because it's the national anthem. It is supposed to stand for something. The other thing that I didn't know when I, when I read your article, I didn't realise that it was composed, in, as you said, in the 19th century by a patriotic Scot who was celebrating men were, who were coming to Australia from the British Isles. And in fact, you said in in the piece that it's actually it has been changed several times. That the words have been changed. Yeah, so it has evolved. It's um, I think it used to be Australian men let us rejoice. So that's changed obviously to Australians all let us rejoice. And um, look, it came from a good place. And I think from the time that it was composed and it was used as a patriotic song from I think the late eighteen hundreds onwards. Um, you know, it had some popularity and obviously enough to become the national anthem, but time has moved on and I think a lot of people would agree that the kind of makeup and composition of Australia has changed a lot from those early days of British settlement here in Australia. More recently, there have been attempts to change the words, particularly 
to be more inclusive and so on. But as I understand it, there's been a lot of derision and a lot of, uh, a lot of pushback, a lot of resistance against that. Why, why would that be the case? Yeah, that's true. There's been a, a recent push um, to try and update the anthem to make it a little bit more inclusive to Indigenous people. Um, a Victorian Supreme Court judge, Peter Vickery, has recently written to Malcolm Turnbull asking for these updates. And the government, Malcolm Turnbull's department, wrote back and said, look, we're not going to change the anthem. Um, but even that suggestion earned a lot of pushback from, I suppose, more conservative circles of the coalition, people like uh, Queensland frontbencher James McGrath and Tasmanian um, former frontbencher Erica Betts. And I think that's uh, mm-hmm. perhaps more in keeping with just the conservative desire not not to change things Anything, and, yes. and yeah and perhaps um that's where that comes from and perhaps a view that it's a more lefty thing to want to tinker with national symbols and national anthems and and that that plays into the broader cultural culture war that we're in the middle of at the moment um in in terms of our national politics now i want to ask you something else just maybe finally um what do you say to people who just say meh and uh, who cares anyway? How do, how, do you, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah, and I'm sure there are people who would say that. And I think that anthems are really important. I think that when we play the national anthem, it's at really serious occasions, um, uh, things uh, you know, like commemorations for, for wars, for important sporting events, for important national moments, you know, moments of celebration. And I think that it matters how we define ourselves um, to ourselves and also to the outside world and you know at the moment I think that we're having a pretty good hard look about you know what Australian identity is in terms of citizenship changes that the government's proposing we're talking about um, recognizing our indigenous population uh, in a more meaningful way Um, obviously there are things like homegrown terrorism that we're worried about so I think the way that we define ourselves and define our identity is important. I think that I don't think that it is something that we can just shrug our shoulders over. And that was Judith Ireland. She's a journalist with The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. And her article arguing for the dumping of the current national anthem will be available on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website along with the podcast of the show. That's it for Communication Mixdown this week. And don't forget Radiothon, supporting 3CR, Progressive Radio, The Radical Alternative, and of course, Communication Mixdown is there in the mix. Support us. And our special Radiothon edition will be on next week. And support us, if you're, especially if you're finding the show interesting, provocative, a little bit useful. Make sure you donate.